Hello, and welcome to episode one of the Drug Training Podcast. In this episode, we're going to talk about research chemicals. These are the chemicals that were part of a research project and were never thoroughly tested and were only tested in a laboratory setting. Some of these drugs are responsible for a lot of deaths around the country, and some pose a huge officer safety risk for police officers or anyone else that may come into contact with these drugs. Welcome to the Drug Training Podcast with Keith Graves, a police officer who spent 28 years specialising in drug investigations and who regularly teaches law enforcement officers, private businesses and concerned families on spotting and dealing with drug use. This podcast is the essential resource for both professionals and individuals who need practical help, advice and insight. Now, here's your host, Keith Graves. Welcome to episode one, the inaugural launch of the Drug Training Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Graves, and we're going to talk about research chemicals this week. As I talked about earlier, these are chemicals that were part of a research project. So what happens is there's a bit of patent piracy that occurs here. So let's use uh, spice as an example. We'll talk about the different kinds but of research chemicals that are out there, but spice is the easiest one to talk about. A lot of the original research with spice, the researchers wanted to find out a little bit more about cannabis and take the good things out of cannabis that could be used as a medicine and try and research it a little bit more. So in the laboratory, they started studying different cannabinoids. As they started studying them, they realized it didn't have any benefit, but they would still write a research paper on it because your research really wasn't any good if you didn't do a research paper on it. So they go ahead and publish it. Well, then along comes some guy who decides to pull that research off the internet and make that in his mom's basement. So he makes it in his mom's basement, and then he goes ahead and sells it on the open market. And then that's how we're running across these. That's kind of the layman's way of looking at it. So there's a lot of different drugs in the research chemical market. It includes drugs like synthetic opiates that are killing people all over the country. These are your fentanyl, acetylfentanyl, and we'll talk about a couple others. Your synthetic cathinones, which a lot of people know those as bath salts. Synthetic cannabis, we just talked about, like spice and synthetic hallucinogens like N-bomb. And there's a couple different other categories, but those are the big ones that are causing problems for us right now. So let's talk about synthetic opiates. Drugs in this category include drugs like U47700. It also goes by the nickname of Pink. You might remember this drug from being in the news where two young kids in Park City, Utah died when they overdosed on it. And this is something that you can just order over the internet, have it delivered to your house, and then you can get high like you're high on heroin. Some of these drugs are a lot more powerful, some are weaker, and some are right along the lines of heroin. But all these drugs in this category are all very similar to the drug heroin or morphine or the, any other of the opiates that are out there right now. Now, U47700 or pink, this one was just scheduled as a Schedule One drug by the DEA under emergency legislation. So you won't see this one around as much, but it's a good example of how easy it is to get drugs like this over the internet. You've got AH. 7921, MT45, and then we got the ones that we see all the time now. And these are the ones that are killing people across the country. Acetylfentanyl, furanyl fentanyl, carfentanyl. Now carfentanyl is an interesting one. Carfentanyl is a large animal tranquilizer. A dose as little as a few milligrams is enough to send somebody to an overdose and kill them. Now to give you an idea of how much of a threat it is to people that might recover this as evidence, is you need to look no further than some of the veterinarians that will administer this to a large animal. They'll wear basically a hazmat suit when they administer this to a large animal. They'll wear a respirator. They'll glove up. They'll wear uh, outer protective clothing. It's not something that you can just handle without taking some extra precautions. 
but we have cops on the street that are recovering carfentanil on a regular basis. And it does pose a lot of different threats. The biggest one is transdermal threat. Transdermal meaning that you can absorb it through your skin. So imagine if you stop a suspect, they have carfentanil, and you search them, and you find some of this uh, carfentanil in their pocket. Now, it's going to come as a white powder. Now, what other drugs come as a white powder? Uh, Cocaine, methamphetamine, ketamine, you know, all your typical white dope drugs. You're going to have a tough time telling right off the bat that it's carfentanil. So you go ahead and manipulate it. Let's say you even wear latex gloves. Now, there's been episodes where officers have gone ahead and field tested it, and it's gone airborne, and they've inhaled it just from it going airborne, and it's caused them to go start overdosing. So it's not something you really want to field test anymore. And in my blog, The Briefing Room, I put out a blog post that talked about the need for officers to stop field testing drugs just because of this threat. Now, an interesting side note on carfentanil. Uh, several years ago, you might remember some separatists had taken over a Russian theater and had taken hundreds of people hostage. The Russians were, were facing a very tough situation. They had people that set up bombs or IEDs at several of the typical entry points and breach points that we would take to enter a structure and take it over. You had several people armed with automatic weapons. It was a very tough situation that they were facing. It's suspected that the Russians pumped carfentanil into the theater to knock everybody out. And it worked. It knocked everybody out and they went in and, you know, they they lost a lot of people, but certainly not as much as if they'd gone in without pumping in carfentanil. Probably wouldn't be, now I'm not saying this is a good tactic or a bad tactic. I mean, it, it was done and it's something that could be debated for the next few decades. But the problem is now you have all these people that have overdosed and need naloxone to help recover them from their from their overdose. But just a little side note about carfentanil, a little bit of history there. But the big takeaway from the from these uh, synthetic opiates is that they're a big transdermal threat for police officers. You also have a high overdose rate because it's in, a lot of them are immensely more powerful than heroin. And again, carfentanil is that good example. But also furanyl fentanyl and acetylfentanil, I think, are a little bit more powerful than heroin. So some of these people don't even know that it's fentanyl. There's they're cutting heroin with fentanyl. They're cutting cocaine with fentanyl because it's fairly easy to get. And so you have a lot of people that don't realize they're taking these fentanyl products and start overdosing, or they're thinking they're taking heroin and they take their normal dose of heroin, but turns out it was cut with fentanyl. And now it sends them into an overdose. And now we have an emergency based on that. We also have synthetic cathinones. These are most commonly called bath salts. They're sold on the internet. You can go into liquor stores. You can go into some gas stations, mom and pop gas stations, and you can buy them. They're usually sold in these little foil packs, either, you know, a gram. And what it is, it's a CNS stimulant. So think like methamphetamine, cocaine, it's in that category of drugs. It's like being on meth, but it makes you even more crazier, which who which who would have thought that there would be something more crazy than meth. Some of the names that you might see out there is Foxy or 5-MeO-DMT or 2C. And people under the influence will have very dilated pupils, they'll have a very fast pulse, they'll have quick speech. It, the people that use this drug are people that are avoiding positive drug tests. They're people that, you know, let's say they're a truck driver and they have to go in for their routine drug testing through the Department of Transportation. Well, Department of Transportation searches for methamphetamine, amphetamine, marijuana, you know, the, the, the old popular street drugs. Well, DOT hasn't kept up with the changes, and now we have people taking bath salts. So they want a high like methamphetamine or a high like cocaine, but they have to do a drug test or they might be on probation or they might be on parole and they don't want to come back positive. So they're going to go ahead and take a bath salt so they can have the feeling of being under the influence of a stimulant and still come back with a clean test. 
It's also super cheap. So we get a lot of people on the street that are looking for a cheap high. So you get a lot of transients, people that are homeless, don't have a lot of money. So you might see people like that turning towards it. And it's also very addictive. And so people do become addicted to it. And you do have an issue with that, just like any of the other white dope drugs. So if you ever run across these people on, on the street that might be under the influence, you're going to do an evaluation just like you normally would. Again, you'll see those dilated pupils. You might shine a light in their eyes and the pupils will be slow to react to light. They'll have that fast pulse. Uh, they might have a white coating on their tongue. They'll be hyperactive, acting bizarre. Sometimes it might be a medical emergency. You have to play each one by ear. We also have synthetic cannabis. This is also known as spice or K2 or fake weed. And again, the people that do this, they're the people that are trying to avoid a positive drug test. There are people that like marijuana and they like the feeling of being high on marijuana, but they got to take a drug test for work. They got to take a DOT drug test or something like that. They're on probation. They're on parole. And so they're going to go ahead and turn to synthetic cannabis. So you can buy this same place you're going to buy bath salts. You can buy it in a liquor store. You can buy it uh, at a mom and pop gas station. Or what a lot of people do is you order it over the internet. So you're going to order the powder over the internet, and then you're going to take acetone, and you're going to mix the powder with the acetone. You're going to spray that on top of something called Damiana. If you just go to Amazon.com, look up Damiana, and it's just this green leafy vegetable matter that you can order, and it's super cheap. They're going to spread that out onto a pan. They're going to spray it on there, and parts of that Damiana get a whole lot of spice. Some parts don't get a whole lot, so you can see where there might be issues when people take this drug. And then they're going to put that into a foil package, and they're going to ship it to their consumers. They have names like JWH-218 or CP231 or AM421. Those chemical names will help identify where it came from. They indicate where it was developed. So as an example, JWH-218, that JWH stands for James W. Huffman. He's a researcher from Clemson University. Mr. Huffman originally was doing research into these drugs, published papers on it, and then somebody came along and took it off the internet and then decided to make that in their mom's basement, decided they could get really high on it, and then started shipping it off to other people. So again, that's that patent piracy that I talked about earlier. If it starts with an HU, that came from the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. AM, I think that one comes from a single lab in China. Not positive, but I think that's the one. Then you also have drugs like synthetic hallucinogens. N-bomb's the most popular. It's like taking LSD and meth at the same time. It's addictive, which is unlike LSD. LSD, you're not really going to become addicted, at least not physically. You might become emotionally dependent on it because you like the feeling of it, so you want to go back to it and you want to have that original feeling. But in bomb, this synthetic hallucinogen, this synthetic LSD, if you take that repeatedly, you can become addicted. And with LSD, LSD might not kill you directly. So if, you know, it's like uh, the old adage, marijuana never killed anybody. LSD overdose, I don't I haven't heard of anybody dying from it, just like you haven't heard anybody dying from taking too much marijuana. But it's the things that they do while they're high that ends out killing them. So somebody on LSD might be so scared of something they run into traffic, which I've actually had a case like that. Somebody was so scared of something that they saw ran into traffic and got hit by a car. You'll see stuff like that. You know, like marijuana, nobody overdosed on marijuana and died, but they have driven high on marijuana and then run somebody over and killed them. But N-bomb has caused death. So LSD, nobody's died directly from it. But N-bomb, people have died because they've taken too much N-bomb. And you take it just like you do LSD. It's on blotter paper that is placed on that blotter paper. And then they uh, 
tear off a piece and they put it on their tongue, just like you would LSD. So there's been incidents where people thought they were taking LSD, but in reality, they were taking N-bomb and then it's caused them some serious problems. Now, I just want to go back and just clarify something on the LSD. Now, LSD might not kill you directly, but I just want to tell you a story about an agent with the uh, California Bureau of Narcotic Enforcement. And this agent had done a uh, participated in a search warrant on an LSD lab and he had proper protective clothing on, but did not realize that there was a rip in there. He got the equivalent of a thousand doses of LSD. That affected him for the rest of his life. He has a lot of issues from that. So although LSD might not kill you, if you take enough, it's going to cause you a lot of problems it, psychologically and physically. All right, when you hear those tones, that's the tones that police officers hear in their car when they get an alert for a be on the lookout or a bolo. And I take this opportunity when you hear those tones to talk about some story that's in the news that I think you guys might be interested about. In this case, those tones are letting us know about TCP. It's a drug like PCP and a shooting that occurred in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is the one where a uh, police officer who happened to also be a drug recognition expert ended up being an officer-involved shooting with a, with a man uh, out in the street. The Tulsa World News reported that Terrence Crutcher's toxicology results were released. This is the man that was shot in the officer-involved shooting. The officer that shot Crutcher reported that he was acting bizarre and appeared to be under the influence of a drug, and she would know more than anybody due to her training as a drug recognition expert. In the toxicology report, Crutcher tested positive for both PCP and TCP. We're all pretty familiar with PCP, and I outlined how to deal with somebody on PCP in a blog post on the briefing room, which if you go to onlinedrugtraining.com, you can go back and look at that post. But the other drug, TCP, is not widely known. TCP is almost 50% more potent than PCP. So what does that mean to officers on the street? Imagine trying to arrest a suspect who's on PCP. He or she will have an inability to concentrate or think clearly and might be catatonic or hallucinating. These symptoms would be amplified considerably if that person is on TCP. So imagine if you had four shots of tequila. Now, what if those shots were 50% larger than an average shot of tequila? How much more inebriated would you be? Hallucinations might be more amplified for the suspect on TCP than if he or she was on PCP. And the subject's anxiety and paranoia could also be amplified. And TCP dissipates quickly from the blood with a half-life of approximately two hours. TCP can be detected in the blood and urine if you must do a toxicology test in a criminal investigation. So detecting the presence of TCP depends on many factors, including the individual's metabolism, their body mass, their age, their hydration level, their physical activity, their health condition. But TCP can be detected in the urine for two to five days, in the blood for up to 24 hours, and in saliva for one to five days, and in their hair for up to 90 days. If you encounter somebody under the influence, they'll have horizontal gaze nystagmus, and it'll be very, very pronounced. In fact, they might have something called resting nystagmus. It's where, when you're looking at their eyes, their eyes are bouncing horizontally back and forth, just resting looking at you. And you'll also see something called vertical gaze nystagmus. Their pulse rate, as well as their blood pressure, are gonna be elevated. Their pupil size and their pupillary reaction to light will be normal. But it's not really advisable for you to shine a light in the suspect's eyes because if, if you think that they're under the influence of PCP or any of the analogs, which TCP would be an analog, you don't really want to shine a light in their eyes because it's going to set them off and you can have an officer safety problem there. They might have a blank stare. It's often called a thousand mile stare. It's as if they're looking through you. They could be agitated. They could be prone to violence. 
and it's a serious situation, and you refer back to my prior article about dealing with people on PCP. Their body temperature can be elevated. They might see profuse sweating. Uh, it's uncommon that people under the influence will strip off their clothes. Their body temperature can be elevated. Officers might see a lot of sweating. And it's not uncommon that people under the influence might strip off their clothes because they're so hot. They'll have a lot of muscle rigidity. The people under the influence of TCP will be confused. And compliance is going to be difficult. As an example, if you told them to put their hands up and not to move, they might put their hands up, but they're going to walk away from you or do something that you don't want them to do. So it looks like that they're listening to you by putting their hands up, but they're really not. Their behavior is cyclic. So one person I came into contact once with, he was under the influence of PCP, and I asked him his name, and he just repeated his name over and over and over again. In his mind, he just answered once, but in reality, he answered like 10 times. And users might be non-responsive, so you can give them all the commands you want in your playbook, but they're not going to listen to any of them. Okay, that's it for episode one, our inaugural podcast. I'd really appreciate it if you subscribe to the podcast, you rated it on whatever service you're using, and you review it as well. That helps me a lot, and it gives me some motivation to keep doing this. You can find more information on the things that we just talked about in our online course, Current Drug Trends. You'll learn even more about what we just talked about. It's basically this podcast on steroids. So just go over to OnlineDrugTraining.com, look up Current Drug Trends, and we're going to put out new classes as quick as we can. In fact, we're in the studio right now filming another episode, and this one will be on drug-facilitated sexual assault. If you can email me with your questions and comments, you know, positive or negative at podcast at onlinedrugtraining.com, tell me what you want to see in future episodes and in general, something that's been bugging you that you want an answer for. And you'll find more information in our blog, The Briefing Room. It's where you can learn about tomorrow's drugs today. I try to publish a story every week, so you can go check back there and see the latest in the drug world. Well, that's it for now. Stay safe, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Drug Training Podcast with Keith Graves. We'd love to hear your comments and respond to your questions in future episodes. Visit our accompanying website at www.onlinedrugtraining.com for more information, advice, training, and to get in touch. And join us again on the next edition of the Drug Training Podcast. Podcast.